And now hear God's word from John chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she looked down and looked into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we pray that by your spirit, you would lift up our hearts to you in joy and praise and adoration as we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior and our King. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. Way, way back in high school, I participated in two sports football and track and field. I put the emphasis on the and field because that's the part I participated in. I did the events in the and field part, which was mostly shot put, which is where the football linemen hung out and lifted weights and tried to stay in shape for the next football season. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I don't want to mislead you. I was not and have never been an athlete. I was a football lineman, which those are two different things. Uh, That's what I I did. Right next to our high school was a community cemetery, a well-kept memorial garden with paved trails surrounded by grave markers and memorials. It was our routine every practice, no matter what sport, it was our routine to go run a mile back through the cemetery and then up back to the field house, all the way through the cemetery and back. 
And I never got quite used to it, of course, being a non-runner in the heat of August. I often thought it would be a mercy just to roll myself into one of those freshly dug holes and just cover me up and cut out the middleman. I thought that that was a good idea. But it also seemed to me irreverent and disrespectful to run through a cemetery, to run in a place like that. You aren't supposed to thunder through a graveyard. You're supposed to walk quietly, step gently. Uh, but to be honest, all my arguments to the coach uh, that went along that, uh, that, that routine, it, it had to do more with disliking running than a real sense of propriety and, and reverence. In our text today, Mary and Peter and John certainly had no hesitation in running through a graveyard, even though running for them was more remarkable and out of place than it was for my football team to run through a graveyard. There's not a lot of running in the Bible. Not a lot, just a few notable events. Remember when Elijah outran Ahab's chariot? Uh, there was that notable runner. Or when the father in the parable runs out to meet his prodigal son. There's a messenger here or there who runs in the Bible, but otherwise you don't see a lot of running because in the ancient world, it wasn't dignified for anyone, especially an adult male. It was not dignified to run, if you had status in life or had station in life, you never ran. Because in order to run, you had to gird up your tunic uh, so you didn't trip, and that meant you had to show off your, your pasty white legs. And that was embarrassing, and that was undignified. So you don't see a lot of running in the Bible until you get to John 20 and the account of the resurrection, and then there's running all over the place. Everyone is sprinting and not just running through town or running through a field, but running through a graveyard, running in a place where you would certainly walk reverently. Why are they running? Why does anybody run outside of exercise? You may run because you're afraid. Maybe you're running from a bear or you're running from a swarm of hornets. Uh, you may run if you're in the hurry to get somewhere. If you've uh, got a connection at a, at a distant gate in an airport, you might run to make your connection. Children run out of pure joy, just for the sheer pleasure of running. If you turn kids loose at a park or turn them loose at a playground, they tear off and they go as hard and as fast as they can go. They run not because they're in a hurry, not because they're afraid. They're not running to get their exercise in, but because they are full of joy and delight. Their feet are light. Their feet are swift with joy. Well, there's a different kind of running going on in John 20. It's not quite the light-hearted running of children. There's this nervous energy, a bewilderment mixed with confusion and fear. They know that something has happened with the grave and the body of Jesus, and perhaps they have a vague recollection of some things that Jesus said, like the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus said that, but when he said that, they didn't understand, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. So now they work to sort all this out as they run to the graveyard to investigate. Had they fully grasped the meaning of his words, had they understood his mission or the nature of his death, they would have been running out of pure joy, but they aren't quite there yet. There are three runners in this text. There's John, the young man who wrote this gospel, the one who was right next to Jesus at the Last Supper, the one who laid on Jesus' side. 
the only one, John was the only one who stayed close enough to the cross to hear Jesus's words on the cross. John was there so that Jesus could entrust the care of his mother to John. Jesus entrusted Mary's care to him. And so in this text, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. That's John. The second runner, Peter, the apostle in the gospels who seems to be right at the center of everything. He's the first one to speak up. He's also the one who denied Jesus on the night of his arrest and his trial. John races Peter to the tomb and beats him there. They've gotten this disturbing report from Mary Magdalene that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And so they run to the grave to see what has happened. John beats Peter there. He gets to the tomb first, but then he stops. He stoops down and he looks into the mouth of the cave that they were using as a grave. The stone had rolled away and John stoops down and he looks in and he sees the curious sight of the linen cloths that had wrapped up the body of Jesus. They're folded neatly and put aside. When Peter catches up, Peter just charges right into the tomb. He doesn't stop. He goes right inside, and then, and only then, does John follow him into the tomb, follows him inside. They see that there's no body, but it's not a messy scene. If robbers had come to steal the body, why would they go through this elaborate ritual of staging the cloths, of folding up the linens, of laying the handkerchief that covered the face of Jesus, folding that up and laying that to the side? Why would they do that? Why would they unwrap the body to begin with? Nothing makes sense. Nothing that they see here, it, 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 nothing seems real. Until a new idea emerges in the, uh, in the mind of John uh, this text says he saw and believed. John already believed that Jesus was who he said he was. John believed that God had sent him. John believed that Jesus was the Messiah. John believed that Jesus came to call Israel to repentance. But there was a new belief that washed over him now as he understood what had happened, that the impossible had in fact occurred that God had vindicated his obedient son, Jesus, that the father had overruled the unrighteous, unjust judgment against his son, and that Jesus had in fact conquered the grave through uh, his, his resurrection. And Jesus, uh, the Jesus who, who John saw die on the cross was alive again. John believed, John saw and believed. Peter, however, walks out scratching his head and they depart, they go their separate ways to their own homes. Peter doesn't seem entirely sure of what's happened just yet. Not until uh, uh, several days later when Jesus appears to Peter while Peter is fishing does it all come together for Peter. The third runner in this account is Mary Magdalene. The first time we meet her in Luke's gospel, she's among the disciples. And we find out that the Lord had cast seven demons out of her. After she's delivered from the bondage of demons, she never leaves the side of Jesus. Her name is mentioned more times in the Gospels than most of the disciples. She's with Jesus all the way to the cross. She's there at the cross. She's there when they take his body down and lays him in the grave. And this morning, the morning of the resurrection, she's the first one there. She goes to the tomb early to perform that final loving act 
of devotion, to anoint the body of Jesus with spices and to do those final steps of burial preparation according to Jewish custom. She, she couldn't do that because of the Sabbath. All of that had to be delayed because of the Sabbath. But now she's going there at her earliest possible opportunity to mourn and also to do this final act of devotion and love to the Lord Jesus. When she gets there, she doesn't expect to see what she finds. When she arrives at the tomb, the stone is moved. And so she runs immediately. She runs to tell Peter and John her interpretation of events. What, what's going on? She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Who's they? Who, who is she talking about? Who, who took him? The Jews? The Romans? Some malevolent, mischievous sect who's just trying to stir up trouble? She doesn't say because she doesn't know. But she presumes that there's some nefarious activity going on, and this only adds to her grief. After Peter and John have left, then Mary stays around. Maybe somebody has seen something. Maybe somebody knows something. Somebody can help me. She's still weeping, and she looks again into the tomb, and she sees two angels in there. Now, this is always a a frightening sight. Anytime you see angels, they say, don't be afraid. And you see an angel and people fall over. They fall on their face when they see angels. Uh, she looks in there and sees angels and they ask her why she's weeping. She says, because they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Uh, just imagine her grief that they had her, uh, they, they had their way with him. They crucified him after beating him, after mocking him. They, they, it's over now. Can't they just leave him alone? Uh, can't they let him rest? Can't they allow him the dignity of at least a peaceful burial? She's so overcome with grief that she can't even think straight about all these things. She turns around and finds someone standing right behind her, a man who asks two significant, profound questions. The man asks her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? The fact that he asks her two questions uh, means that maybe he didn't get, get an answer to the first question because she was so overcome with weeping that she couldn't talk. He, he asks her, woman, why are you weeping? He doesn't get an answer to that question. And in fact, he doesn't even get an answer to the second question, whom are you seeking? She thinks he's the gardener. Now, why does she think that? Well, uh, in the previous chapter, in verse 41, in John 19, 41, we find that in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb was uh, in which no one had yet been laid. So at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had loaned to Jesus. Jesus didn't need it for long. He just borrowed it. He borrowed it for a little while, and that tomb was there in a garden. The tomb was in a garden, and she thought, if someone is there that early, it must be the groundskeeper. It must be the person who tends to this plot of land. So thinking that this man was the gardener, she says, look, if, if you know what's happened, or if you've done something, please let me know what's going on. Was Mary that far off in assuming Jesus was a gardener? Here is a man and a woman standing in a garden. Here is the second Adam who was obedient at a tree in a garden where the first Adam sinned, failed at a tree in a garden. Here is the second Adam now comforting the woman in her grief, tending to his garden, having faithfully defeated the serpent, 
He's not there sinning with her. He's there strengthening her, having uh, completely overruled the failure of the first Adam. Here, the second Adam comes in every way like a gardener to tend to his vineyard, to tend to his, his fruit trees. Uh, and she says all this. She says, thinking he's the gardener, tell me what you've done, not recognizing him until he says her name. And I, you just think, how would, how would if he had said her name? After he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she's still overcome with grief. She says, sir, you better tell me where you left him. And then he says, Mary. And it's at that point, and when he says her name, you can see the light bulb go on in the narrative. He says her name, and she says, oh, Raboni, which is a term of affection. It's a term of respect. She says, my master, my teacher. In that moment, when he says her name, she goes from this panic, stricken, frantic, overwhelming grief to absolute jubilation, pure happiness. As that light of realization breaks in, the worst, most unimaginable thing has turned into the greatest, most unimaginable thing. And she grabs him so tightly, she holds him, she wraps him up so fiercely that he says, don't cling to me. I've got to go. I can't stay here. You're going to have to get used to me not being here. And uh, his presence and his words have this stabilizing, this fortifying effect on her and on the apostles when he goes to see them. All the fear flees. All the anxiety departs. All the imagination of the worst possible outcomes have gone. And now he is the rock. The risen Jesus is the source of calm and peace and strength in the midst of these confusing events. Because he has defeated death, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay, better than okay. It's going to be fabulous, beyond words, beyond description. Jesus is the source of peace to his people, not because he's a stoic, not because he has some uh, passionless Greek Gnostic philosophy that pain doesn't exist or that suffering is not real. That's not, that's not why he's a source of peace. Jesus experienced every weakness and every pain that is common to man. So Jesus knew what fear felt like. It wasn't ungodly fear. It wasn't untrusting fear, but it was real fear, dread of what he was to endure. Hebrews 5, which we read on Friday night, Hebrews 5 says, he had godly fear that during the days of his flesh, he offered prayers with loud cries and tears. Jesus, we know, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus on the cross breaks out in Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 includes the words, my heart is like wax. It has melted within me. Jesus knew dread and fear. I'm sure that you've had appointments on your calendar. Maybe they were uh, tough meetings that you had scheduled or conflicts or confrontations. And in the days leading up to that appointment, it, that, that meeting consumed your thoughts. It, it absolutely, the nearer you got to it, the deeper your dread grew. Jesus had such an appointment. Jesus knew that his life of obedience was leading him directly to the cross. And no matter what else he knew about what the father was going to do, how the father was going to bless him and deliver him, there's no getting around the fact that looking forward to that was not a pleasant prospect. 
And despite the horror that was in front of him his whole life, and in spite of his own fear, Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. Somehow, in the midst of his own fear, he was a source of peace for his people. How many times does Jesus in the gospel say, don't be afraid? How many times does he say, peace? Don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't fear the loss of comfort. Don't fear hunger or nakedness because it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And now in the morning of the resurrection, Jesus continues to be a fortress of calm for his people. Now, before they put it all together, before they understand the reality of the resurrection, Mary and the apostles are not harboring silly fears. We wouldn't say it's silly. They're not being ridiculous. They have just been through an exceedingly traumatic experience. One day, they're feasting with their friend, their teacher, who they believe is the hope of Israel. The next day, he's hanging on a Roman cross. Everything had moved so quickly that it was such a blur. And now, on this morning, they don't even know where his body is. What is going on? What is, what is happening? How do we put all this together? And their fears were compounded by thoughts of what's going to happen next. What's going to happen to us? They know our names. They saw us hang around Jesus. What's going to happen to us? They, so they assemble in private. John says that they were, they were assembled in private for fear of the Jews in verse 19. Because they live in a hostile city. The city was hostile to Jesus and no telling what the next move of the Sanhedrin or no, no telling what the next move of Herod was going to be. They don't live in a peaceful time. This was a world of terror for people living in an occupied country with many reactionary and revolutionary forces in play. There's always some fear. You live with the fear of what some faction, what some sect is going to do next, what some rebellious zealot is going to do. And now how is Rome going to make us all suffer? because of what they do. What new form of misery is waiting for us right around the corner? So they had a number of legitimate, genuine sources of danger in their world. And now here comes Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, introducing fearlessness into a world of dread and terror. As the author of Hebrews says in, in uh, Hebrews chapter two, that through death, he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus put death to death. And with it, he conquered the fear of death, according to Hebrews chapter 2, and he released his people from bondage to that fear. That doesn't mean that there's no longer anything in the world that provokes fear. Well, and there's still godly fear, but we are not in bondage to sinful fears. We process fear through the resurrection, through the truth of the risen Lord. Jesus speaks to our fears the same way he speaks to Mary and the apostles. Peace be with you. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. If death is dead, what else is there to fear? The worst thing that you can possibly imagine in this life, death and the grave and the end of your life, 
That's all been conquered. In Christ, you have life abundant, life beyond death. Death does not get the final word in your story. Death does not dominate your life. And certainly the fear of death does not dominate your life. Death cannot harm you. Death cannot separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So do not fear. Don't be afraid. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, because he has ascended to rule over all the earth, and because the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and because he shall reign forever and ever, what do you have to fear? Like our brothers and sisters in the first century, like John and Peter and Mary, we also live in a world of fear. Our senses are constantly being assaulted with messages of doom. We hear it. If you listen to the wrong things and the, and the wrong people, it's just a constant torrent of fear. Our nation is going to collapse. Our economy is falling apart. War is on the horizon. There's always some new crisis. There's always some new outrage. There's some new reason to be out of your mind with terror. And if you listen to this and if you pay attention to it all the time, if that's your diet, you're going to live with a constant low-level dread and worry that occasionally breaks, breaks out into sheer panic. And Jesus still asks his bride today the questions that he asked Mary. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I'm right here, he says. Am I not enough for you? Who are you looking for? Your savior and your friend has conquered death itself. And he calls his bride to come out with him and to be the calm one, to be the peaceful one, the comforted one. He calls his people, his church, his bride to be that fortress of stability and calm for the world in such a way that her peace is attractive. Her peace is evangelistic. Come, be peaceful and calm and rest with us because our king has conquered everything. He sends his people into the world as, uh, as those who know what's really going on, to live confident, fearless lives on this planet of anxiety as he calls all men to turn from their fears and rest in him. We have peace, real peace, not hallmark peace, not a wave of the hand, it's gonna be okay. We have real peace because we have been delivered from the fear of death and in addition to that, we're given life and restoration and triumph over the damage that death has wrought. The resurrected Jesus imparts to his people the same spirit and the same life that brought him out of the grave. At the assurance of pardon, I read a little piece of Romans 8 uh, just a few minutes ago. I, I find so much hope and so much comfort in Romans 8 when I'm overwhelmed or when I'm distraught, or when I'm befuddled, or I'm feeling weak and puny and helpless, I remember this. Listen to it again. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you catch that? The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The spirit who transformed that dead, broken, battered body lives in you. The spirit who preserved him from corruption in the grave lives in you. The spirit who raised him up in a glorious new resurrection body fit for the new heavens and earth, that spirit dwells in you. 
the spirit who brought an abundance of life out of death is the same spirit who dwells in you and among us. So my question is then, what problem do you have that is greater or more hopeless or more complicated or seemingly more impossible than the problem of bringing a dead man to life? What problem do you have that's more complicated or hopeless or impossible than that? If you are in Christ, then he who raised Christ will give life to your mortal body. You have living in you the spirit of resurrection. And the reality of that means that the, the resurrection of Jesus has been incorporated into our whole lives. Because Christ has risen, there is nothing in your life that cannot be redeemed and resurrected. There is nothing in your whole life that cannot be turned into resurrection glory. Because Christ has risen no matter where you are right now, no matter what your story, what trouble you've gotten yourself into, whatever bad decisions you've made, it is possible because of this spirit who dwells in you, it is possible for you to pursue holiness and to live a faithful, peaceful life that's pleasing to God. Now to be clear, that's not the same thing as saying that every single problem in your life gets sorted out or fixed on this side of eternity. No, we live our lives bearing the internal and external scars of our own sins, the scars, the wounds of our own bad decisions, sins that have been committed against us and weren't our fault. We were sinned against and we are scarred. We are wounded. Uh, sickness, injury, bitter providences all leave their marks on us. There are things that happen to us that change us, and we will carry those changes to the grave. We are forgiven. We are restored. We are redeemed. We'll go through many deaths and resurrections, just like we did this morning. We went uh, down on our knees, confessed our sins, and we were resurrected to new forgiven life. There, we go through these deaths and resurrections in life. We are cleansed and we're renewed in covenant, but the scars remain. Some of you are suffering acutely right now with the realities of living in a fallen world. There are relationship problems that just don't seem to have a solution. They're just never going to get fixed. It's not going to get resolved uh, in, in any kind of um, a, a way that everything gets worked out. You have health problems that are not getting better. They're getting worse. And you're going to take those to your grave. That, that might be what kills you. You have these health problems. You have relationship problems. And outside of an extraordinary miracle, you're going to live with these things until you die. These are going to be with you until the grave. There are wounds that do not go away. That's the reality. Not every loss is refunded on this side of the grave. Not every problem gets tied up with a neat bow. But the resurrection of our Lord Jesus transforms every one of your wounds. He gets the glory out of those scars, out of those losses, as we are shaped by suffering more and more into his image. Even after the resurrection, Jesus bore the marks of his suffering. He goes to the disciples and he shows them his hands and his sides and the disciples were glad. He shows them the marks of his, of his, of his suffering, but those marks take on a whole new meaning now on this uh, side of the resurrection. Those are not the scars of a helpless victims. Those are the trophies of a mighty warrior, a mighty victor, the power of 
of the resurrection of Jesus through the spirit who raised Jesus transforms every beautiful and bitter moment of life. It puts each event, the resurrection of Jesus and the reality of the life that we have in him puts each event into the context of the restoration of the whole earth. Everything serves God. Everything serves his purposes. Everything brings him glory. And so in light of the resurrection and in light of the fact that the cross was good, everything is ultimately good for us. It's whether it's life or death, health or sickness, poverty or prosperity, it is good. The resurrection of Jesus brings our life meaning and purpose and light and glory. And so because of this, we can run our race with calm assurance. We can run like children when we run our race, not out of panic, not out of fear. We're not running frantically, running like children all out with pure delight, running through this graveyard of a world, this world of death, this world of fear, knowing this, that our master, our Lord, our Reboni, our Christ is conqueror over all of it. And it all belongs to him and it all exists to bring him glory. That we are in him and no matter what, no matter what, we have life. Let's give thanks and pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would deliver us through this world of death and fear. Deliver us in the hope that is set before us in the resurrection of our Savior. Give us peace. Calm our hearts. Deliver us from every worry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.